0: Now, Elisha, like his mentor Elijah, was a man who stood up for God in the midst of a kingdom that had fallen from God. Before he began his ministry, you remember, Elisha asked for and received a double portion of the spiritual power that had rested upon Elijah. The result is that he accomplished twice the work. Elisha ministered twice as long as Elijah. And he did twice as many recorded miracles as Elijah did. Elisha ended up a prophet in Israel for half a century, believe it or not, from 850 to 800 B.C. Elisha was a contemporary of two other prophets, Obadiah and Joel. And Elisha had a heart for the students. He had a heart for the school of the prophets. He may have been the teacher to both Jonah and Amos. Elisha took over the strategic ministry of Elijah. 2 Kings chapter 4 records four of Elisha's miracles. The chapter could be subtitled, The Best of Elisha. Last week we tackled the first two miracles. Tonight we're going to look at the last two. We're going to begin tonight in verse 38. And Elisha returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in the land. Now, the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, and he said to his servant, Put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. Now, Elisha is hosting a pastor's conference, and it comes time to feed the prophets. You know, when pastors get together, eating is an important part of the fellowship. And so notice he says, Put on the large pot. We got pastors here eating. And so one went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered it with a lap full of wild gourds and came and sliced them into the pot of stew, though they did not know what they were. And this is not good. Whenever the chef doesn't know what he's putting in the stew, beware. Then they served it to the men to eat. Now, it happened as they were eating the stew that they cried out and said, Man of God, there's death in the pot! And they could not eat it. Evidently, the unidentified herbs and vines were poisonous. And they didn't know it until someone had sipped the stew. And they shouted, There's death in the pot. Did you know that this is the problem with the whole human race? There's death in the pot. Satan has interjected death into the pot. The poison of sin has entered the world. And it now contaminates every area, every arena of life. So Elisha said, then bring some flour. And he put it into the pot and said, serve it to the people that they may eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. Now what's most interesting about this miracle is what Elisha doesn't do notice he never tries to pick the poison out of the pot he never tries to go through the pot or sift through or spoon through and find the poisonous root the lethal ingredients you know many people think that this is the solution to sin to pick out the poison and so they put themselves through endless rounds of introspection and self-evaluation They think it's up to them to sort of sift through the stew and find all of the poisonous ingredients and eliminate them from the stew. Once the poison is interjected, though, it permeates the whole stew. Both broth and root were contaminated, and so obviously just picking out one or two poisonous things is not going to solve the problem. Instead, I like what Elisha does. He simply adds flour to the stew. Rather than pick out the poison, he trusts in an additive to neutralize and purify the stew. This is the Jesus solution to sin. Just start adding God's word. Start walking in God's love. Interject the influence of the Holy Spirit. Fellowship with other believers. Fill your life with the good things of God. And it purges the poison. It neutralizes those poisonous ingredients. As Galatians 5 verse 16 tells us, Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Let me suggest tonight, if there's poison in your marriage, you can spend a lot of money going to the marriage counselors and trying to pick out all the poison, but here's a better solution. Just put the love of Jesus in your marriage. Put the forgiveness of Jesus in your marriage. Put the influence of the Holy Spirit in your marriage. Just dump the flour into your marriage. What a difference it'll make. Maybe you're having problems with your kids in that relationship. You can try to work out all the little details, but rather do the Jesus solution and add the good things of God into that relationship and watch it just neutralize the poison and create a good, healthy, edible stew. Recently I read where a group of local pastors were in the news protesting the Sunday sale of alcohol now I empathize with their concern if you've been a pastor for any length of time you know that drunkenness it wrecks lives and it ruins families but you know even if these pastors succeed sale of hard liquor on Sundays I doubt if it's going to do a whole lot to increase the moral climate of our society you know what I mean The solution of sin inside us, the solution inside society at large is not to pick out the poison. We can spend all day picking out the poison and get nowhere. The Jesus solution to all of our problems is to add the flower of the Holy Spirit and add the flower of his love and add the flower of his goodness. For when people are full of new wine, their desire for the booze will disappear. Well, verse 42 says... Then a man came from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley bread and newly ripened grain in his knapsack, and he said, Give it to the people that they may eat. But his servant said, What? Shall I set this before a hundred men? In other words, this isn't enough. You can't feed a hungry a hundred hungry pastors with just twenty loaves of bread. You gotta have some fried chicken and some. Corn on the cob and something like that. And some of that spaghetti that Mark cooked today, man, was that good or what? He said again, give it to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he said it before them. And they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. And here is another miracle of multiplication. It's actually the third one associated with Elijah and Elisha. You remember in 1 Kings 17, the widow's handful of flour and that small trace of oil in her pot refused to run out. Earlier in chapter 4, another widow's jar of oil was filled with as many pots as were made available to pour it into. Now here, 20 loaves feed 100 hungry men, and the prophets still have leftovers. Guys, God can do a lot with our little, when we give to him all that we have. Don't forget it. Well, chapter 5 begins. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. Now, here was a decorated military man. The Jewish rabbis actually said that Naaman was the archer who shot the arrow that killed King Ahab. Naaman had a distinguished career. He had been proficient in battle, he had risen in rank. He was now a general in the Syrian army. In fact, he was a national hero. Naaman had five stars on his lapel. But underneath those five stars, it was a small white patch. And that patch of leprosy on his skin made all of his victories and all of his medals and all of his stars incidental, minuscule. Leprosy was the AIDS of the ancient world. It carried an inescapable death sentence. And notice the last line here in verse 1. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And I hope you realize there is a but in everybody's life. Nobody's perfect. We could hail your attributes, we could talk about your achievements, but we'd have to add a but. For no matter how blessed you might be, everybody has problems that steal away the joys and tarnish the successes. God sees to it that this is the case in everyone's life. This need, the weakness, the restlessness in our lives, the but in our lives is God's way of drawing us to Jesus and teaching us to trust in Him. Well, the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. She was referring to Elisha. And Naaman went in and he told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so he departed and he took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of of clothing, ten new suits from the men's warehouse. And then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised when this letter comes to you that I have sent Naaman my servant to you that you may heal him of his leprosy. And of course, the silver and the gold and the new suits would be payment for the miracle. Well, it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes And he said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. King Jehoram is well aware that he has no healing powers. And he figures that the king of Syria must be picking a fight. He's just trying to conjure up some reason to accuse him of non-cooperation and launch a strike mission, an attack against him. Well, so it was... When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes and he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. And then Naaman went with his horses and chariot and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times. And your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. Understand, Naaman is a dignitary. He is used to the red carpet treatment. This is what he gets everywhere he goes. But notice, Elisha doesn't even bother to come out of the house to greet him. He's totally unimpressed with Naaman's rank and Naaman's reputation. Worldly credentials meant nothing to Elisha. He could have cared less about the stars on this man's shoulders. Elisha's only interest was what was in his heart. Well, verse 11 tells us, but Naaman became furious. And I can hear him now. I've traveled a hundred miles. The least this guy can do is get off his tuff and come out and shake my hand. Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and sort of wave his hand all over the place and and heal my leprosy. Naaman thought Elisha would be honored to help a man of his stature. He could come out and he could kind of sort of wave his hand around like Benny Hinn or something. Orchestrate some kind of holy hoopla, you know, kind of make a show. And after some high-flying theatrics and some charismatic attention getting, Elisha then could just heal Naaman's leprosy. He could get his autograph afterwards. Once he was clean of his nasty leprosy, Naaman might even agree to a photo op. Well, Naaman is about to learn a lesson. God's healing and God's miracles come not to the mighty or to the worthy or to the deserving, but to the humble. To people who have no claim of their own, but people who come on their knees, people who come begging for mercy, people who come with faith. This is what God responds to. This is what God blesses. God will not only remove Naaman's spot, but in the process, he'll heal him of a worse leprosy called pride. Well, Naaman continues his tirade. Are not the Abana and the Farpa, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Can I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned and he went away in a rage. Oh my, if this was all the prophet was going to do, tell me to go down and dip in the muddy Jordan River, you know, I would have just stayed at home. The rivers in Syria are nicer than this muddy Jordan. Verse 13. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father. If the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? <laughs> Good question. How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? And so he went down and he dipped seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God. And you know, after the first six dips, Naaman felt like a complete idiot. What am I doing dipping in this muddy water? He kept looking at his little patch of leprosy and nothing's happened. And he's thinking, I'm just stupid. This is nuts. Get me out of here. I want to get home. He was so embarrassed. I mean, his horses drank from this river. How could it possibly heal him? But after the seventh dip, after the seventh dip, We're told his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Wow. Of course the river had nothing to do with it. It wasn't the river that healed him. But God's supernatural power responded to this man's act of humility. God's power always responds to our acts of humility. It always responds to our need, our neediness. God responds to our our humility. Not our pride and insolence. Simple obedience became the leper's cure this day. Understand, Naaman had two problems that most of us share. First was sophistication. You see, Naaman was into image. Remember those old Andre Agassi commercials, you know? Image is everything, you know. as was Naaman. He was a control freak. He was a politician. And like all politicians, his goal was to manipulate situations. So that it would put Naaman in a good light. Dipping in the muddy Jordan certainly wouldn't do that. But his second problem was scientific rationalism. If he couldn't understand it, if it couldn't possibly be true, he wouldn't believe it. Everything had to be filtered through his human logic and his human reason. I believe these are the reasons that we don't see these kinds of miracles today. Naaman eventually yielded to a command that he couldn't understand. That he was sure would humiliate him. But that's when God did the miraculous. And that's when God will do the miraculous in our lives. See, Naaman learned important lessons. Trust God even when you can't tame the situation. Have faith even when you can't figure it all out. This is what Naaman learned. Well, verse 15 tells us, and he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides. And he came and he stood before him. You know, he had a whole posse with him, you know, a whole entourage. And he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. Naaman wants to make a contribution to the EEA, to the Elisha Evangelistic Association. <laughs> this is why he had brought the ten... Suits from the men's warehouse and the 6,000 shekels of gold and the, you know, 10 talents of silver. But notice Elisha, I love this. How many, how many evangelists today would, would say what Elisha says? As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Here, pastor, take my, take my $1,000. No, no. Don't want your money. How many many pastors we know would do that? You know, Elisha turns down the money. The manner of the miracle has been designed by God to prove that his blessings can't be bought with money or with honor or with clout. That's why Elisha turns down the money. There was a point to it. Jesus said in Matthew 10 verse 8, Freely you have received Freely give, and that should always be our attitude toward the blessings of God. So Naaman said, Then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord, to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now here's the first example of taking back dirt from the Holy Land. Right here. Actually, this was a response to his superstitious upbringing. You remember we talked earlier about the concept of localized deities. You know, every parcel had its own unique gods. Naaman here takes back dirt so the God of Israel will feel more at home there in Syria over his dirt, you know, as if he has some attraction to a particular chunk of ground. This was nothing more than silly superstition. The God of Israel is the only true God. He is sovereign over all heaven and all earth. God is not contained to a load of dirt. Naaman, though, is a typical new believer. You know, he's learned of God's love, he's put his faith in God, but now he has to unlearn all of the lies that he's believed in the past. You remember when you first got saved? You know, it wasn't just what you. What you were going to learn, but it's what you had to unlearn. Christian discipleship is learning God's Word, and it's unlearning the lies of the world. Well, Naaman's comments in verse 18 show that he's taking his newfound faith seriously. He's pondering the demands of discipleship. Following God will have some dramatic implications for a Syrian of his stature and in his position. And so he says... Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Rimon, who was the false god of the Syrians, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimon, when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. You see, Naaman was the king of Syria's right-hand man. And state business would require him... For time to time to enter into the temple of Rimnon, this false god. In his heart, Naaman would be worshiping the God of Israel. But he wasn't sure how God would feel about his presence in a pagan temple. And so he asked for forgiveness in advance. Now, that's not a good thing to do. God, I'm about to sin. Please forgive me ahead of time. I get you in a lot of trouble. But he's a new believer, and he's trying to work these things out, and he's just embraced the God of Israel, and he's thinking ahead. How is this going to impact my life when I get back home? And this is the the whole process of discipleship. It's taking the faith that we've received. It's taking the goodness of God and the grace of God, but then figuring out how does this apply when I go to work tomorrow? How does this apply when I'm dealing with situations in the neighborhood and I'm talking to my friends? And This is what Christian discipleship is all about. Well, I like how Elisha responds, or better yet, how he doesn't respond. Notice Elisha just says, then he said to him, go in peace. (laughs) Elisha doesn't let Naaman off the hook either way. He doesn't tell him what he should do or what he shouldn't do. Certainly, idolatry is an abomination to God. But likewise, Naaman can be a powerful influence for God in the position that he occupies in the Syrian court. Elisha leaves it to Naaman to work out his salvation in fear and trembling. Rather than just rely on pat answers, the prophet knows that the Holy Spirit is going to lead this man. The Holy Spirit's going to guide him. You know, rather than us just give you pat answers, rather than us just tell you what you should do. and should, You know, a lot of people want that. Tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. A lot of times I can't tell you what to do. Because your choices, our choices aren't always between right and wrong. Or between, you know, good and bad. Sometimes our our choices are between best and good. You know, and so we have to make these kinds of hard choices. These kind of gray area choices. You have to be led by the Holy Spirit. You have to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I think we need to be careful not to reduce Christianity to another set of rules. It was never God's intention. He did away with the law. We shouldn't try to establish a new one. It's a relationship that God wants with each of his children. It's a walk that we walk. And that's what Naaman did. He encouraged him to go in peace and walk with God and let God lead him and guide him. So he departed from him a short distance. But Gehazi, oh boy. The servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master has spared Naaman the Syrian while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. Elisha said no to the money, but Gehazi, oh boy, he was after the purse. He saw dollar signs lit up in his eyes. And so Gehazi pursued Naaman. Well, when Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. And he said, is all well? And he said, all is well. My master has sent me. Oh, boy. That was a bald-faced lie. Saying, indeed, just now, two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of raiment. And so Naaman said, please take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants, and they carried them on ahead of him. When he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand and stored them away in the house. Then he let the men go, and they departed. Gehazi, he concocts this lie, and he tells this rich Syrian that Elisha, he's changed his mind. You know, he's got guests to feed, and could he use a talent or two of silver? You no, he's changed his money. He kind of like a little of that money after all. And Naaman gives him two of the talents. And Gehazi, he hides the loot in the tower. There's only one problem, though, with Gehazi's plan. You can't hide your sin from God. He knows. He sees all. It'll all come out eventually. And now he went in and he stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where did you go, Gehazah? Gehazi? Elisha's kind of like your mom. (laughs) He already knew. For years, Kathy had the kids convinced that she had eyes in the back of her head. They couldn't do anything without her knowing, and she was right. And he said, your servant did not go anywhere. He lies again. Do you get the idea that lies beget lies? You tell one, and you have to tell another to cover up the first lie that you told. Well, then he said to him, did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing? Olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants. And notice Elijah's statement. Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing? That implies that Gehazi, he had a regular payday. You know, he had a payday. And he's basically saying, was this payday? One payday. Why, why aren't you content with your pay? Why do you want more? That was the idea. He realized that Gehazi's problem was greed. Which has been the downfall of many a minister, I'll tell you. You know, there are three huge traps for a man in ministry. Billy Graham says to steer clear of the gold and the girls and the glory. That's what every pastor needs to stay away from, the gold and the girls and the glory. All three can bring down a ministry like an axe laid to the root of a tree. They yelled timber over Gehazi. May they never yell that over us. The bucks and the babes and the boasts. They belong to the master, not to us servants. Well, in verse 27, Elisha finishes his chilling comments to Gehazi. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence leprous, as white as snow. In the end, that's what his greed got him. Well, you could entitle chapter 6, Whoops, I Lost My Head. An axe head, that is. And the sons of the prophet said to Elijah, See now, the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. Please let us go to the Jordan, and let every man take a beam from there, and let us make there a place where we may dwell. So he answered, Go. Then one said, Please consent to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. Now understand, Elisha was not only a prophet, he was also a teacher. And he developed a network of schools where young men could gather and could study God's Word and could get trained in the prophetic ministry. And there were branches of Prophet you. Prophet University in Bethel and in Gilgal and in Jericho. And these schools were desperately needed. Elisha lived in a dark day of apostasy. These schools were lighthouses of truth in the pagan land. And evidently, these schools were quite popular. They were growing. In fact, they were running out of room. It was time for a campus expansion. And so a group of students went with Elisha to the Jordan to fall down a few trees to get some timber. But their building project has an ominous start. Verse 5. For as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. And he cried out and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. Now one of the guys is chopping away, just chopping, chopping And this very valuable iron axe head flies off into the river. I'm sure all the golfers in the crowd can relate to this. I've spent many afternoon hacking and hacking and hacking, and suddenly my iron goes flying into the water. I don't know how it happens. (laughs) Hey, in the ninth century B.C., iron implements of any kind were expensive. And worse, this was a borrowed axe. Man, the guy who's working with this thing, he says, i got to get this thing back. i got to return it. And so the man of God said, where did it fall? And he showed him the place. And so he cut off a stick and threw it in there. And he made the iron float. Therefore, he said, pick it up for yourself. So he reached out his hand and he took it. Now, Elisha throws a stick into the river where the axe head has sunk. And miraculously, the iron floats to the surface. Today, modern man has found ways to make iron float. Just go down to the harbor and watch the Navy vessels sail in and out. If man can engineer iron floating, then it shouldn't surprise us that God has His ways as well. What Elisha did, though, was perform a miracle of retrieval. Notice this. A miracle of retrieval. He recovered what everyone thought was lost. And he did it by throwing a stick into the water. Think of what's been lost in your life tonight. Think of what's been lost. Do you have rusted talents? Is your marriage on the rocks? Has your mind been burned out with drugs? Do you have a heart that's lost its innocence? And what's worse, what you've lost was borrowed. For they were all God's gifts, weren't they? God gave them to you to be used for His glory. You see, on our own, we're sunk until God tossed in a stick, a roughed out piece of wood. We call it the old rugged cross. God has redeemed the world through that stick. He's retrieved us and all that's been lost from sin and Satan. Our mind and our talents and our heart and our marriage. He's raised us up from the depths. Once during the Easter season, there was a little boy who noticed all of the crosses on the front lawns of the neighborhood churches. And so he asked his mom, Why all the plus signs? I like that, though, for the cross is definitely a plus. Man was weighted down by sin until God tossed in the stick. Add the cross. Add the cross of Jesus. And the solution of sin suddenly becomes crystal clear. The weight of sin is removed. The load becomes light. What was lost is retrieved. Once you toss in the stick, that old rugged cross. Well, in verse 8, the king of Syria is at war with Israel, but the Israelis have a secret weapon. Now, the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. In other words, this thing keeps happening. I mean, the king of Syria makes his plans, and somehow the army in Israel's respond to it. They, they're figuring out what he's saying to his court, to his associates. Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. And he called his servants and he said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? I mean, every time the Syrians have a strategic battle maneuver, God revealed their whereabouts to Elisha. And so the king of Israel could counter. And finally, the king of Syria gets tired of this and he suspects a traitor in his court. There's a spy. He calls a meeting to find the guy who's the spy. Well, that's when the king's servant tells him, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, he tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. In other words, king, you can't whisper to your wife in your bed without Elisha knowing what you've said. You know, when we visit the Golan Heights, you can see on top of the mountains the high-tech surveillance equipment. And this equipment is aimed at the city of Damascus. Today, Israel still hears the king of Syria in his bedroom. <laughs> Just through a little different method, through this high-tech surveillance Here, though, is the ultimate in espionage, divine surveillance. I remember when our kids were little, we had a baby monitor in their room. We had one monitor in their room, and we had one monitor in our room so we could hear them. They woke up in the night or whatever. And the family across the street, they also had an infant. And they, too, had one of this baby monitor system. One day my neighbor and I we were talking out in the yard, and he, he said, "Oh, by the way, I, I heard your wife and you talking last night on our monitor." <laughs> That's kind of unnerving. <laughs> to know that your neighbor's listening to you with your wife in your bedroom, you know, talking. Evidently, he had picked up our frequency. But it's scarier to realize that no conversation is hidden from the ears of God. Hey, don't think that you you and your wife are completely alone, that nobody's listening. God is always listening to every conversation, to every whisper. Here's proof. Well, verse 13, so he said, go and see where it is that I may send and get him. King Assyria is going to arrest Elijah, so he thinks. And it was told him saying, surely he is in Dothan. And Dothan was a little town just north of Israel's capital of Samaria. Therefore, he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. This is an extraordinary effort to capture one man, a great army. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. He was stunned. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? The servant is coming unglued while Elisha is as cool as the bottom of the pillow. And so he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. What do you mean by that? Wait a minute, now it's you, there's me, there's one, there's two. What do you mean those that are with us? And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see then the lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around elisha heaven had dispatched an angelic army to protect elisha and his servants it was the syrians who were surrounded not elisha and now the servant can see Guys, listen to Psalm 34, verse 7. Then the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. The angel of the Lord encamps around us. I would imagine a few angels know our name. I had a couple of the kids that came back. Do we have an angel food cake in the brook? I thought we did. I had a couple of the kids walking through the sanctuary this afternoon, and one of them said to the other, said, You know what angel food cake is, don't you? And he said, No, what? He says, It's dead angel. <laughs> dead angel. I just threw that in. It's, there's no such thing as dead angel. They're eternal beings, and they're vigilant about guarding God's saints. You know, so often people say that faith is blind. But to the contrary, the person with faith sees more than other people see. You see, secular eyes see only the physical and the mental aspects of life. Their sight is sort of two-dimensional. But spiritual eyes see 3D. Their vision includes the spiritual realm. Faith enables us to see the whole picture. Eyes of faith enable us to see what God is doing in any given situation. This is why we need eyes of faith. Well, in verse 18, the Syrians, they move in to arrest Elisha. And so when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. And what happens next is hilarious. Now Elisha said to them, This is not the way. Nor is this the city, follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria, right into the lap of the king of Israel. Elisha walks Israel's blind enemy down Main Street and turns him over to the king. Isn't that amazing? And so it was, when they had come to Samaria, that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and there they were inside Samaria. Now when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? Now remember, Elisha was known for his mercy. Elijah was known for his power and his judgment. Elisha the prophet was known for his grace and his mercy. So verse, 30, verse 22, But he answered, You shall not kill them. Would you kill those you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And then he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away and they went to their master. So the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. And so for the moment, this show of mercy creates a peace, a truce, between Israel and Syria. But the peace was short-lived. For verse 24 tells us, it happened after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. Now understand the military strategy behind a siege. You surround the city and you cut off the supply lines and then it becomes sort of a waiting game. And if you're patient, You can starve out the enemy. You can wait until all of their supplies have been exhausted. And then they're forced to surrender. And this was what was was happening inside the Israeli capital. And there was a great famine in Samaria. And indeed they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cob or a pint of dove droppings for five shekels of silver. Now, this was a national disaster. Under normal circumstances, a donkey's head was considered unedible, and yet it was being sold for 80 shekels. People were so hungry, they were eating a donkey's head, paying good money for it, prime rib price. A pint of dove dew was selling for five shekels of silver, I mean, this was terrible. People were washing their cars and then parking them under birds' nests, hoping that their feathered friends would sort of fly by and land a contribution on their windshield. Give me some benevolence. And it got worse. Verse 26. Then as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help my lord, O king. And he said, If the lord does not help you, where can I find help for you? For the threshing floor or from the wine press? And he's being sarcastic. I mean, yeah, yeah, you know, we're really running the threshing floor over there. Wine press is cooking. I mean, nothing was going on. There was no food. That's when the king gets a sense that something even worse is happening. Something worse than he could have possibly imagined. The king said to her, what is troubling you? And she answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today. And we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. And the king is appalled. Women are boiling their babies, resorting to cannibalism. The situation is so desperate. The people are so hungry. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the woman that he tore his clothes, and as he passed by on the wall, the people looked, and there underneath, he had sackcloth on his body. The king, too, was desperate. But, but look at the conclusion he draws. Rather than confess his sins, for that's the reason that they were in this condition, rather he says, God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. He blames Elisha on this tragedy. The king should have opened his Bible and read Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 53. Moses had predicted that when the people disobey the law, curses will come upon them, among which you shall eat the fruit of your own body the flesh of your sons and your daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemies shall distress you. All this that had come upon them had been predicted by God. If they disobeyed the law, this is how they would be cursed. The king should have known his Bible, and he would have known that the solution was for him to repent, not blame it on Elisha. But Elisha, he was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. And the king sent a man ahead of him, But before the messenger came to him, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this son of a murderer? (laughs) That's Elisha's description of the king. you see how this son of a murderer has sent someone to take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him fast against the door. In other words, pin him between the door and the jam when he walks in. It's not the sound of his master's feet behind him. In other words, the king's going to show up next. And while he was still talking with him, there was the messenger coming down to him. And then the king said, surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Chapter 7. Then Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. And Elisha makes a mind-boggling prediction. Never has a prophet gone this far out on the limb. Trust me, Thus, tomorrow about this time A seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. A seah was eight gallons. A shekel was the equivalent of 60 cents. Understand, one pint of dove dew is selling for five shekels. 24 hours later, eight gallons of fine flour and 16 gallons of barley grain will sell for a single shekel. How could such a dramatic turnaround happen in such a short period of time? And this is the conclusion that one of the king's officials draws. Notice verse 2. An officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? He scoffed at God's promise. There's no way, man. Here was this problem. His heart wouldn't believe what his mind couldn't conceive. And this is our problem. This is the huge stumbling block to faith. As long as a person can see a way for God to work it out, as long as we can see a possible scenario for how God can do it, then we'll believe. But what happens when the promise seems impossible? When we look at the situation and we think, there's no way to solve this problem. Are we going to limit God to only what our flesh can figure? To only what our mind can muster? Hey, God is able to work outside of our lines don't box him in. He has means that you and I know nothing about. Well, Elijah, he warns the king's scoffing servant that God will get the last laugh. He tells him, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Well, the Lord works this miracle in a most unexpected way. Verse 3. Now, there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we shall die also. Now therefore, come let us surrender to the army of the Assyrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live. If they kill us, we shall but die. No, we're going to die anyway. No matter what we do, we're probably going to die. So, you know, let's just see what happens. God starts this miracle with four lepers who've got nothing to lose. (laughs) Kind of funny. And they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. No one's home. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites and the king of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. God fooled the Syrians. He created an illusion. The Syrians thought they were under attack. They thought Israel had hired mercenaries to fight for them. The Syrians panicked and split, and they left their tables full of food. Their supplies were well stocked. I mean, what was the noises? We don't know. Kathy says that when I snore at night, I sound like a stampede of horses. So, you know, who knows? Maybe God recorded my snoring and played it for the Syrians, you know, and they, they thought they were being attacked, and they split. And when these lepers... Came to the outskirts of the camp. They went into one tent and ate and drank and carried from it silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried some from there also and went and hid it. I mean, these guys had hit the jackpot. They won the lottery. But that's when it dawns on them that this is not just about us. There's thousands of hungry people back in Samaria. Verse 9. And so they said to one another, We are not doing what's right. This day is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. And so they went and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, saying, We went to the Syrian camp, and surprisingly, no one was there, not a human sound, only horses and donkeys tied and the tents intact. And the gatekeepers called out, and they told it to the king's household inside. And so the king arose in the night, and he said to his servants, Let me now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, When they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants answered and said, Please let several men take five of the remaining horses, I mean, they had eaten all the others, which are left in the city, Look, they may either become like all the multitude of Israel that are left in it, or indeed, I say, they may become like all the multitude of Israel left from those who are consumed. So let us send them and see. They draw the leper's conclusion. Man, we got nothing to lose anyway. Well, therefore, they took two chariots with horses, and the king sent them in the direction of the Syrian army, saying, Go and see. And they went after them to the Jordan, and indeed, all the road was full of garments and weapons, which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. So the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the tents of the Syrians. And remember the prediction of Elisha. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. And I wonder what happened to that official who scoffed at God's promise. Verse 17. Now the king had appointed the officer on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. In other words, the scoffer had become the gatekeeper. Not a good job to have when you're between tables of cooked food and desperately starving people. And so the people trampled him in the gate. And he died, just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. So it happened, just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two sillas of barley for a shekel and a seah of fine flour for a shekel shall be sold tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. Then that officer had answered the man of God and said, Now look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, In fact, You shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. Beware, limit God to what is humanly possible or personally conceivable, and you'll miss out on many of the Lord's blessings. Faith expands the possibilities.